Hey, Pastor Justin here, and I want to welcome you to our verse-by-verse teaching through God's Word. We hope and pray that this is a huge resource to you, and it helps you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Also, want to encourage you, if this is your only place where you're being fed, go and be a part of the local church. We love being a part of your life, but it's no substitute for being a part and serving in the local church. Also, if this has blessed you, we would love to hear about it. There's an email that's listed below, and if you send us an email and just tell us how God's Word has changed your life, it would bless us tremendously. Also, would you pray and consider maybe helping us continue this ministry and getting God's Word all over the world? You can do that by going to newheightsohio.com and click on the Giving tab. Anything helps, and we appreciate it. God bless. You ready to get into God's Word today? For those of you who don't know me, you're you're brand new here. My name is Justin Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at New Heights Church. And we love God's word. That's why we do verse by verse. And we find ourselves in the book of 1 Peter. And this is so ironic that this is what I'm gonna preach on this week. It feels like it was just yesterday that I was preaching this from Romans chapter 13. But we're gonna talk about government today. Woohoo! Come on! The title of the message is God Help Me. And the reason for the title is that this is just a really difficult text. Peter's about to tell us, get ready for it, to submit to authority. Governmental authority. Again, (laughs) woohoo! In verse 11 and 12, Pastor Jamin did an incredible job. Give it up for Pastor Jamin, filled in the pulpit last week. But in verse 11 and 12, Peter called us as believers, believers, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, those who follow Jesus Christ, he called us to live blamelessly or beautifully, or as the ESV puts it, honorable. Okay, so a lovely life or a beautiful life, an honorable life, what is that? Well, we're going to see right here, Peter takes us in this direction that very, very clearly from the text today, that an honorable life is a life of submission. Yes, I said submission. If I had titled my message today, Submission to the State, I don't think anybody would have come. (laughs) Nobody would have wanted to hear that sermon. So I'm not preaching this message today because it's going to make you feel good. told you before, that's not my job. The job isn't to make you feel good. I'm not preaching it because it's popular. I'm not preaching it because it's what you want to hear. I'm not preaching this message, or I'm preaching this message today because it's in the Bible. It's in God's Word, and I want to be faithful to preach the whole counsel of God's Word and not water it down or avoid it. I understand it's a very controversial subject today. I understand it's very sensitive. We don't like the word submit in our culture today. Don't tell me what to do. I could do whatever I want to do. Nobody likes it when their personal right to choose for themselves is taken away, especially, especially Americans. Because our, our, our culture is kind of based upon the idea that we have freedom from, you know, these restrictive laws of this tight, g- horrible government pointing their finger at us and telling us what to do. It's kind of how we began as a country, right? We're Americans. Rebellion's a part of our national identity. You don't believe that, go ask Britain. We came to be by rebelling. That's how we 
we came into existence. But the difficulty in submitting is it's not just an American thing. The whole world struggles with this idea of submission. It's, it's human tendency. It's human nature. However, listen to me, that's not the attitude a Christ follower should have. They should have an attitude of submission to God and out of that submission to God, an attitude of submission to authority that God has established. An attitude of submission to authority in the church, an attitude of submission and authority in the home. And of all of the instruction that we are given in the New Testament about living the Christian life, I think one of the most, if not the most difficult, is the doctrine of submission. But hear me today, this, what we're going to talk about, is a relevant message for you and I today. And I understand, I, I, I get it, it's very countercultural in America, not just in secular society, but in the church as well. It was in the 1960s that a very controversial psychologist by the name of Timothy Leary coined the phrase, think for yourself and question the authority. And I, that really became, I guess you could say, the slogan for the baby boom generation. During the 1960s and the 1970s, this psychologist was arrested 36 times worldwide, and President Richard Nixon once described him as the most dangerous man in America. And now today, if you look at our culture with all the craziness and all the stupidity that we see, and we see a lot of it, I believe that at the root, it's Timothy's, Timothy Leary's philosophy to question authority. Insubordination has become a part of our cultural ethos. You guys have all heard the saying, what parents allow in moderation, children will practice in excess. Everybody knows that. That really applies to humanity. What one generation will allow in moderation, the next will practice in excess. Do you agree with that statement? And you see, what started out as questioning authority has now evolved into just complete disrespect for authority. I mean, we live in a world that if somebody disagrees with authority, not only do they feel that they have the right to, to not honor the authority, and especially they feel the right that they don't have to obey the authority, but they feel like they actually have the right to go and completely disrespect, criticize, and ruin the, the authority's reputation. We see it all the time. And now with social media, my goodness. And today we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 2, looking at verses 13 through 17. We see that Peter is going to tell the believer to submit to government. Yuck. Yuck. There's some parts in the Bible I just don't like, and this is one of them, but it's in the Bible. And it's pretty clear. Then Peter will go on and build upon this idea of submission, not just to the government, but to your employer. That's verse 18. And then with the family, he's going to teach wives to submit to their husbands. That's chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But he starts out the verse today with submitting to government. And Peter's playing off the previous verse as the unbelieving world is looking at you. You are to conduct yourselves honorably. The world is watching us. So if you're a Christian, that's if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and submitted to his lordship over your life, it's very important how you live because somebody is watching you. 
Every Christian life is an advertisement for the Christian faith, either a good advertisement or a bad advertisement. And don't get on Facebook because it's a whole bunch of bad advertising. Submission is a part of the plan of God for your life, and it's a part of how God intends to use you as you are being observed by this world. Peter shows us here how submission in the Christian life, it silences our critics. And then he goes on and he gives three aspects of Christian submission that we're going to talk about today. And I want you to know I'm going to spend a lot of time in the first aspect. So if you're looking at your clock and thinking, man, when is Pastor Justin going to end? He's got two more aspects. Don't worry. I'm going to spend the majority of the time in the first, the first aspect that Peter gives. But today, man, we find ourselves in an incredibly complicated text of the New Testament. And on top of that, we're also in a season that is very emotionally charged. Preaching this is dangerous today. (laughs) And so I've approached this text with a lot of prayer. I've asked that the Holy Spirit would speak through me today. I've asked that the Holy Spirit would convict hearts. And I've asked that the Holy Spirit would allow my application to be God's application. And that I, I would be removed from the text today. This is not Justin Hansen. This is God's word. I'm honored to preach today and to work through this portion of scripture. But before I navigate through some deep deep water, I want to open in prayer. Is that okay? Let's pray. Father God, give us grace this morning as we dive into your word. We want to hear from you. We want you to interrupt our lives this morning. And so I pray that we would be both hearers and doers of the word. And today, through our obedience in both listening and living, it would bring you incredible joy. Speak to our hearts and bring transformation to both hearts and our minds today. In Jesus' name, amen. Look with me at verse 13 through 14 because that's where we're going to see the very first aspect of submission. We see the recipients of our submission. Look with me, verse 13. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to Every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. All right, well, let's start where Peter starts. He says, be subject. Some of your translations say submit. Here, here's the, the thing that you need to take note of this morning. This is an imperative. It's a command. It's not an option. He's not telling you if you feel like it, do it. He's telling you to do it. If you've professed your faith in Jesus, you need to do this. He doesn't say subject yourself to godly leadership or to good leaders or to sane leaders or to intelligent leaders or even leaders who have the people's best interests. He says be subject to every human institution. It's about as basic as you can get. It's an interesting word. It's a military term. The Greek word is hupotasso, and it means to arrange in orderly fashion a group of soldiers under the ranking of a commanding officer. All you military guys would get this and understand this. Can you imagine in the military if there was no ranking? No commanding officers? Can you, can you imagine uh, there would be no respect for authority, no obedience to the chain of command? There would be chaos Same thing in in government. God has established government and he's established civil authorities. However, the word is sometimes used in a non-military sense. It carries the idea of voluntarily cooperating or even helping somebody carry a load. 
Some of your translations say submit yourselves. Submit yourselves. That indicates it's a voluntary act. Again, it's an imperative, and it's in the present tense. It means it's ongoing. It's continually submit yourself to God and to his governmental authorities. This is something that you have to do continually, not just when you have a leader in office that you like, but this is something that should be a part of your life till the day you die. Again, yuck, right? I also want to make it real clear. I want to make it crystal clear that the word subject or submit does not convey inferiority. Okay? When the Bible says wives submit to your husbands, does that mean the husband is better than the wife? No. Does it mean the husband's smarter than the wife? No. I know in my case it definitely doesn't mean that. I was a C-minus student and I married a 4.0. Think about when the police officer pulls you over. Does that mean the police officer is a better person morally than you? No. Does it, does it mean that he has a position? No, it doesn't. It means he has a position of authority over you. When you go to work, your boss tells you to do something. Does that mean your boss is better than you or smarter than you? No, it means he has a position of authority over you. So you need to rank yourself under for the sake of function and order because we are commanded to subject ourselves and subjection or submission is not just for wives, not just for kids, not just for servants. We're all called to submit to, to one another. We're going to see that later in chapter 5. Peter's going to hit on it. So today in our text, he's saying to us, we should never be known as troublemakers but as model citizens. Man, Peter would have a heyday in today's culture. <laughs> That's my son. <laughs> Peter, Peter starts out by telling us that our perfect God, listen to this, our perfect God works through imperfect authority. I'll say that again. Peter starts out by telling us that our perfect God works through imperfect authority. That's what he's telling us. Why do I say that? Well, look with me. It says, verse 13, every human institution. So parents, teachers, bosses, government leaders, even leaders in your church where they have rightful authority. He's gonna, but in our text today, Peter's going to zero in on government leaders. And doesn't say you have to like them or agree with them. It says you submit to them. Some of you right now, you hate this sermon. <laughs> but listen, you want to obey, you want to be obedient to God's word? Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God and that all scripture is given by inspiration from God? Then listen to what God has to say here. The Bible is telling us to submit to our governmental authority. And some of you right now are thinking that's impossible. It is impossible to submit to government in our country today. I have heard so many Christians tell me this verse doesn't apply because Peter didn't have to deal with President so-and-so. I won't say their names, but I've heard that all my life. Unless it's the candidate that we want in office, and then we, we hear, well, it's easy to point the finger at those that didn't vote for him and say, submit to your leader, that's what the Bible says. But what about when it's not our candidate? All my life. Easy to love this verse when our candidate's in the chair. Not so easy when we don't like the guy sitting in the chair. Paul mentions two leaders in this text. He mentions emperor and governors. I want to talk to you just a little bit about 
the culture that the recipients of this letter were living in when Peter wrote those words. There was not a democracy in Rome like we have today in America. People didn't get to vote. They didn't have a say in how things were done. The emperor, or some of your translations say, the king, he made the rules and everybody had to abide by them. That was just it. He could do whatever he wants. He could tell you to do whatever you want. You had to do it. Who is the emperor when Peter wrote this letter? It was Claudius. A lot of people will say it was Nero, but now we were about two years shy of Nero. It was Claudius, and who by any estimation really was an idiot. He totally dominated uh, all the special interest groups around him. He was a crafty leader, but he was not really somebody that Christians would admire at all. And after him came Nero. Nero was a vicious hater of Christians. History tells us that when Peter wrote this letter, he was probably two years away from what was called the great persecution in Rome. Man, it, doesn't, it just shows you God knows what he's doing. He gave this letter to the church two years before one of the greatest persecutions. Happened in 64 AD. Here's what happened. A fire broke out in Rome. Most of all the Roman citizens um, and had experienced devastating loss. It destroyed a, a big part of the city, and most of the citizens believed, and many historians believe, that Nero himself started the fire. Nero was a psychopath. And all of a sudden, he feels the pressure because people are talking that it was him who started the fire, and so what does he do? He needs a scapegoat. It was the Christians who started the fire. He accused them of arson. He started persecuting them in mass. In fact, about halfway through Caesar's reign, he became a big fan of horse chariot racing. He thought of himself as pretty uh, big stuff, the Dale Earnhardt of that day. He, uh, he even had a track built for himself in Rome so that he could race his chariots during the day. And the only problem is, uh, at that time, point at night there was no electricity and he needed to light up his his racetrack so what did he do he had people gather up the Christians he would put tar all over them hang them from a pole and light them on fire he used Christians as a human tiki torch so that he could race his chariot at night and then he had these beautiful gardens built and he did the same thing all around his gardens he would light it up at night by putting Christians on the poles he's known as someone who would dress up little Christian kids as sheep and throw them to hungry lions for the entertainment of masses the crowds he was sick, he was twisted, he was demented, and this is the guy that Peter's telling these believers that they have to submit to. He was the first real formal governmental persecution against Christians. And only a few years after Peter wrote this, under Caesar Nero and the Roman government, Peter would be crucified upside down by the same emperor that he tells his readers to submit to. Verse 14, he mentions governors governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, Rome had 28 imperial districts, and those imperial districts were all governed by governors. Do you guys remember Pontius Pilate? He was a governor. Rome gave to them part of the Roman army, legions of soldiers who would keep the peace. They were the law enforcement officers for the government, and they were used on behalf of Caesar. So in today's world, you would consider them almost uh, police officers or anybody who protects the law. 
And under the Roman government, they were to obey. That's what Peter said. Under any government, the believer is to obey, even if we don't agree with them. I want you to know this, though, that in the Bible, we're given three divine institutions that God has ordained. Number one is marriage and family. Number two is the church. And number three is government. So in the Bible, these are the three institutions that are ordained by God, and guess what is the building block for our society? Guess which one? Marriage and family. It's the building block for our society. Marriage is a divine institution, and if we as a nation do not uphold God's design for marriage, we are headed for trouble. We cannot redefine marriage as God's ordained it to be and expect to be blessed. How does God describe marriage? A man and a woman united together in the covenant of marriage for life. Having children, raising them to be God-fearing, that's the building block of society, according to Scripture. But just because we may live in a government that doesn't uphold God's standard or God's design does not give us the right to not be obedient, submissive to our governmental authority. And just hang with me, because some of you are just cringing in your chair and you hate this message. Just hang with me. Is there ever a time when Christians can or should defy and not obey and not submit to the government? Is there ever a time? Yes, there is. Absolutely. You ready? Throughout the Bible, we see examples of believers who did submit to authorities that are foolish and incompetent and ignorant. We see that all throughout the Bible. Think about Joseph having to submit to Potiphar and Pharaoh. Think about Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. So we see it. But we also see examples of disobedience. And here's the rule. If you're taking notes, write this down. Here's the rule. Submit until submitting to earthly authority makes you not to submit to heavenly authority. Okay? You obey until your obedience makes you disobey God. I'll say it one more time. Submit until the submitting to earthly authority makes you not submit to heavenly authority. You obey until your obedience makes you disobey God. So in the Old Testament, when Pharaoh, Pharaoh of Egypt commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill all the boys that were born among the Hebrews, it was the law that was passed. Kill the baby boys. What did they do? They refused to do it. Exodus chapter 1 tells us, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded. That's disobedience. And it was justified. It was okay. Later, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, uh, who was the king when all the captives came in, uh, that was Daniel and his, his friends, this king made them eat a certain diet that was against the kosher Old Testament law. He, made them, he wanted to make them eat all of the delicacies of the king's table. They refused to do it. In fact, Daniel in chapter 1 tells us, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. I'm not going to obey you because it would mean that I would have to disobey the covenant of my God and I won't do that. Another example later on, same king, good old Nebuchadnezzar, built a huge image of himself, a golden image, and he commanded everybody to bow down and worship that image. And there were three guys, three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I've told my wife I want three wiener dogs, three dachshunds, and I want to name them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Anyway, it's beyond the point. Back to the text. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they said this. Guess what? We won't do it. 
We're not going to do it. We're not going to bow to this, this false god. Their reply in Daniel chapter 3, we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image. How about Daniel? King Darius, who was the last king at the time, made a law that for one month, nobody, nobody could pray to any other deity except to himself. And what did Daniel do? No way. No way. In fact, the Bible says in Daniel 6, he opened his windows toward Jerusalem, knelt down on the ground, and three times that day he prayed and gave thanks before his God. How about the New Testament? We've got examples of disobedience in the New Testament when the Jewish Sanhedrin passed a religious law that the name of Jesus Christ could not be preached any longer. They said, you can't say the name Jesus. Don't say that name. You can't preach that name anymore. You are forbidden. It is not allowed. What did Peter and John do? They refused to obey it. Standing before the government authorities, they said this, we must obey God rather than man. You see, that's the principle. Obey man until obeying man makes you disobey God, and then you must obey God rather than man. There are times where we will tell the government no. No. What about us today, you and me, Christians living in the year 2022 in America? I'll tell you, we'll, we'll disobey the government when they tell us we can't pray. We'll disobey the government when they, they say, I have to worship something other than Jesus Christ, my Lord and King. Or when the government tells me to do something that runs counter to God's law, I'm going to obey God rather than man. When the government says we cannot preach the gospel anymore, I'm going to disobey the government. When they tell me that this is hate speech and I can't preach it, I'm going to disobey the government. If a boss ever requires me to lie to extend profits, I'm going to obey God rather than man. If the government ever forced me to perform a same-sex wedding, I'm going to obey God rather than man. So we submit and we do it unto God from our hearts, but never in a way that disobeys God. You got it? You with me? That. All right, moving on. Verse 15, the second aspect of submission is the reason... The reason for our submission, we see this in verse 15 through 16. It says, For this is the will of God, that, they, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, this is the reason, but, and it's pretty basic. Why do we submit? Because it's the will of God. But you remember back in verse 13, it said, subject yourself for, for the Lord's sake. The highest motivation, before we get into it's the will of God, the highest motivation is because it honors God. When you submit to authority, you, you're honoring God. The key phrase in verse 13 is, for the Lord's sake. If you've got a pencil or a pen or a highlighter, highlight that. You do it for the Lord's sake. If you miss that, you miss the most important thing. There's this kind of allegiance to human institutions that is not for the Lord's sake. And that's not what Peter's talking about here. It's not what he's interested in. It may resemble Christian submission on the outside, but it's, it's very different. Christians do not submit to human institutions simply because they feel like it or because they have... Uh, a compliant personality or because the institutions have this power over them. We do, 
we do not look first at ourselves to see what we are feeling like doing, nor do we look for the, first at the institution, for example, our government, to see if there are consequences for not submitting. We look first to God. To God. We consult God about the institution and we submit. Why? We submit for his sake. How many are parents out there today? Huh? All of us moms and dads, we, we, we get this idea. We get this concept because I love it when my kids obey. When I tell them to do something, they respond with, yes, dad, you got it, dad, you bet, dad. I love that. Does it happen all the time? <laughs> no, I hate it when they, don't, when they don't respond like that. And I know all of you parents have been there, and you know what I'm talking about. Liam's favorite response is, why do I have to do that? Well, what do you mean, why do you have to do that? Because your dad said so. Do it. How many of you have? I used to sit on an airplane pre-kids, and I would hear dad say that. My dad said it to me all the time, too, because I was, you know, Liam is such a blessing from God. <laughs> He's here listening to me today. He's such a blessing to me. I, he is a, a spitting image of me when I was that age, and he has the exact same personality I had. So I know... Uh, my dad would love seeing me raise Liam because I remember as a, as a kid, my dad would say the same thing all the time because I would ask that same question. Why do I have to do that? And he would try to explain it again, just why, why, to finally my dad would look at me and said, because I said so, because I said so. And, and you know, And that just better be enough, right? When dad says so, that better be enough. It's not enough that I tell him don't play in the street, a car's gonna hit you. That's not enough. I have to come down with the because I said so. But pre-kids, I would sit on that plane before I ever had kids and I would hear dad saying, be quiet, be quiet. You have to be quiet. You gotta respect people on the plane, be quiet. Why do I have to do that? Why do I have to do that? And I'd be thinking, man, that kid needs a spanking. <laughs> and then the dad would finally say, because I said so. And I remember thinking, that's not gonna work. And here I do the same thing all the time. Do you know how many times I said, because I said so in that car trip? Nine hours to Springfield, Missouri last week. That's 18 hours there and back in a car. I said, because I said so, so many times that I can't even keep count. Because I said so. And that better be enough. What I just said to you as your father should be enough for you to obey. It's no different with God. Well, why, God, should I obey my authorities? Because God said so. And don't you love God for his sake? In verse 13, it says, for his sake. If you love me, John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I've even made that appeal to my kids. Will you do it just because you love me? Will you stop climbing the walls at Texas Roadhouse because you love me? Will you just do it because you love me? Liam, do you love your dad? Stay off the wall. That rock wall out there is not for you to climb, right? You know, parents, is it just me? Please tell me it's not just me. <laughs> if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Do you know there are very few places in the New Testament where something's called the will of God? Very few places, very few places where an author will say, this is God's will. So when people come to my office and they tell me, well, I'm just struggling with knowing God's will. What's God's will for my life? I'll tell you, stay married. That's God's will for your life. Obey the law. 
Don't, have, don't keep having sex outside of marriage. Don't steal. Don't cheat on your taxes. Don't covet your friends and your neighbors. That's God's will for your life. It's pretty easy. The Bible's clear about it. You submit because it's God's will. But then notice what he also says, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Lord, apply this to my life right now with all that's going on in America. Never before has that line jumped out so much at me. You silence your critics How many of you know we have critics as Christians? People are watching us. And it's like I have people that are just waiting for me to say something from the pulpit where they could turn it and twist it. I'm not talking about people in the church. I'm not talking about trolls on Facebook, people who just hate Christianity and hate the church. And if we're brave enough to post something online, they just can't wait to find something where they could report it. We've been kicked off Facebook like seven times. Bring it. The word for rendered silence means this, to restrain, muzzle, or make speechless. Wow. (laughs) How many times have you wanted to muzzle someone? I'm not talking about your spouse. Don't go there. The word Peter used for ignorance here means more than just a lack of knowledge. It It indicates this willful, hostile rejection of the truth. Sounds like our world today, doesn't it? I have been criticized a lot in my life. I'm learning to get used to it. (laughs) I don't know, maybe it's something about the career I chose, but I've learned that living an honorable life really does silence the critics. Can I just pause for a moment and share from my heart? This is something that can free you. How many of you have ever struggled with critics? You have critics, people that want to criticize you, people that it just seems like they follow you around and wait for you to make some kind of mistake so that they can criticize you. And then on top of that, in in my line of the work, I'm always on the stage. I'm always right in front of everybody. And I give people all kinds of ammo all the time for, for criticizing me. And from the moment I said yes to ministry, I've been criticized. The very first thing out of, out of someone's mouth when I first graduated from Central Bible College, moved all the way to New York, walked into the church building, I met the very first lady that I met, shook her hand. She said, well, you're way too short to be a pastor. <laughs> hey, did you read the story about David and Goliath? That's my first sermon. We get criticized all the time in life. Not just me, not just in my profession, but we struggle with people criticizing us. And here's what I learned. You live an honorable life, it really silences them. I'm not talking that they'll stop yapping. They still yap. It's like those little Yorkie terriers that we have at our house or or the little chihuahuas that yap and bite at your heels. They just keep yapping. They keep talking, but nobody listens. An honorable life muzzles them. They can say all kinds of things about you. That person, oh, this person is this and this and that and that. And did you hear what they did and he did? And and if that person's living an honorable life, it shows in the end. Your your true colors, that's a Cyndi Lauper song, shows at the end. (laughs) It shows at the end. Live an honorable life. Don't engage the critics. You don't need to. Don't get on Facebook and fight with them. You don't need to. Live an honorable life because nobody listens to the yapping anymore. Amen? 
Jerry Vine says that most critics are like crickets. You know why? They do their chirping in the dark. Verse 16, you exercise your freedom. Isn't that interesting? Verse 16 says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Wait a minute, he just told us we have to submit. Now he's saying we're free. What this verse teaches us is that we belong to God, and here it is, and not the American government. We are slaves of God and not of man. You see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We do not submit to human institutions as slaves to those institutions, but as God's free people. We submit in freedom for his sake, not in bondage for the governor's sake. God has literally transferred us from this age to the kingdom of his son. We've passed from death to life, but then for a season he sends us back into this age, but we weren't the same as we were before. We're no longer slaves to sin and guilt, but as free people, as aliens who live by other values and other standards and goals and priorities, we do submit, but we submit freely. We don't submit cowering before human authorities, but we gladly obey our one true king, Jesus Christ. Why do most people submit? Think about this. Why do most people submit to authority? They submit because they have to, right? Either they know if they don't, they'll be punished or they have something to gain by submitting. Peter says, as a Christian, you're free of both. You're free of both. You no longer fear what the government can do to you. I am not afraid of what the government can do. I know the end of the story. Before we came here to America, we served in a country where it was illegal to be a missionary and illegal to be a Christian, illegal to convert. I was not afraid to go there. Even when I was detained and questioned, I never experienced fear because I know the end of the story. You're not even afraid of the government taking your life. And if they take it from you like they did Peter, you're able to face it. I want you to know, in America, we're unique. All around the world, people are dying for Jesus. No longer do you obey because that's the way to get ahead, or you obey because now you trust God to take care of all that you need. That's why you obey. I love what William Barclay says. He says this, Any great Christian doctrine can be perverted into an excuse for evil. The doctrine of grace can be perverted into an excuse for sinning to one's heart's content. The doctrine of the love of God can be sentimentalized into a defense for breaking the law of God. And the doctrine of the life to come can be perverted into a reason for neglecting life in this world. And there is no doctrine so easy to pervert as the doctrine of Christian freedom and Christian liberty. Now stay with me. It says, so you are free of the captivities that controls the world's obedience, but now you have this new motivation. You are servants of God and you submit to human laws for, for God's sake, for the gospel's sake. William Barclay says this too. I just like what he says on this. Christian freedom does not be, mean being free to do as we like. It means being free to do as we ought. And that leads me to my last aspect of submission the practice of our submission. The practice. We see this in verse 17. It says, honor everyone. Honor everyone. The world honors people because you get something in return from them. Not the believer. The believer honors them because they are in the image of God. Have you ever noticed there's some places you go to and the customer service is just unbelievable? 
I haven't found that since COVID. <laughs> Man, that's the one thing COVID took uh, from, it, well, they, COVID took a lot. That's not what I meant. COVID took a lot. It, it definitely changed customer service in America, though. The Wendy's across the street, my wife and I laugh. Of course, I have not gone to Wendy's for a long time. Come on, somebody. I haven't had a donut in six weeks. <laughs> when we used to go through the Wendy's, though, we would laugh our head off because no longer is it, how can we help you? Here you go, have a nice day. It was literally this. I got the back of a person. They would throw the bag in my car. I would say, do you have ketchup? No. What? What? Do you have ketchup? Ugh. Uh, sorry, can I get a napkin, a straw? I don't have my fries. And finally, Liz would be like, just go. This is so awkward and uncomfortable. Where did customer service go? Nobody wants to work anymore, right? Because they don't have to. Anyway. But before COVID, there was these places I would love to go because I was treated so Good. And one of the things, we were, as missionaries, we traveled all the time, and we were IHG members with this hotel group, and we had, uh, eventually, because we travel all the time, we got to, like, the gold elite status. And so I would walk in, and they would know when I'm coming. You know, they would have it in their computer, and there'd be somebody waiting for me. Oh, welcome, Mr. and Mrs. Hansen. We're so glad you're here. You don't have to wait in line. Come up front with us. They would have a little platter of like cheese cubes and little snacks and hors d'oeuvres and drinks for me and the kids. And we would get a phone call before. What do your kids want to, what are some of their favorite snacks? And we'd come in. They just treated us so good. Customer service was amazing. How about Disneyland? Disney World, go in there, it's the same thing. They just treated you like you're, you're the top of the world. Well, here's why they do that. They want something in return. They want your money. They want, your serve. They want you to come and use their services, right? Honoring me at IHG Hotels, they got something in return. They got my loyalty and they got my money. Now, as a church, that's not why we honor people. We honor people because they are in the image of God and they are precious to God. That's why we honor people. We want our dream team on Sunday to make every person feel welcome at New Heights Church because they are made in the image of God and they are precious to God. We honor people for Jesus' sake, not because of what they can do for us, but because of what Jesus has done for us. That's why we honor people. And when Peter wrote this in the first century, he wrote it against the backdrop where slaves were not even considered human beings. They weren't even considered people. They weren't considered uh, anything, really. They had no rights, and women had hardly any rights at all. But the Christian church, he would say, is not to discriminate now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we're to mindlessly tolerate any behavior that's inherent and unscriptural and unsinful. I'm not saying that. Not at all. But every single person deserves to be honored because they are made in the image of God. Then it says, love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. Who's the brotherhood? That's you and me. We're told to love each other. It's like in our family, I have to tell my kids, pretend that you love each other. When we go get photos, Allie, can you at least pretend to love Asher for the photo? I'm teasing because they really do love each other. John 13, 35 says this, though. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I love this passage because it's both challenging and it's enlightening. Jesus is pretty much saying that he gives the unbelieving world permission to judge us, to look at our lives, to see if the gospel of love that we preach really works amongst us. 
He didn't say that they will know that you're my disciples by the fact that you, uh, you by the fact that you love each other or love everyone. It says by the way that you love. Man, I messed that one up. <laughs> They'll know that you're my disciples by the way that you love each other in this family. I had a friend growing up who came from a really rough situation, a bad family. There was no peace ever in their home. They, they, it was disorderly and it was crazy. I, even going to his house, I would walk out feeling all kinds of anxiety. He would come hang out at my house all the time, all the time. He'd be at my house for, for breakfast in the morning before school, at night for dinner. He would sleep. He pretty much lived with us as, as much as he could. And he told me one day that he would love to be able to be a part of my family. I'll never forget that. I wish I could be a part of this family. Well, that's how it works. You want to have a family of love that's so compelling that when people visit, they go, man, I want to be in that family. I want to be in that home. I want to be in that brotherhood. Did you know the world looks at the church today and says, I want nothing to do with it? All they do is point the finger at everybody else and they, they can't even get along with each other. They hate each other. They go and disrespect each other. They're nasty to each other. Why would I want to be a part of that family? I didn't want to go into my friend's home even to play video games and get treats and snacks that I couldn't get at my house because I couldn't handle all the craziness of that home. It says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Fear doesn't mean a cowering fear. It's not, it's not a fear of the boogeyman because God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on... Oh, okay, I've been a dad too long. VeggieTales had it right. This is, a, this is a respect and an awe of God that results in submissive obedience to the will of God. And because we submit to Him and His will, and part of His will is to obey authority. We do it because He said to. That's fearing God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. There's a little irony here. Peter uses the same word for the emperor that he used for people. See that? Honor everyone, honor the emperor. <laughs> the Romans insisted that the emperor was a god. So Peter gives a little jab there. He says, honor the emperor like you honor people. I like it. Subtle, but I like it. Because the emperor was just a man, he's not God. He has a high position, but he isn't God. So he says, fear God. That means don't fear Caesar. Caesar is not God. Fear God because God is God. But he says, honor the emperor. I want to make sure you get this. I want to make sure you get what Peter's telling you to do. Honor your government leaders. Some of you say, well, I didn't vote for this current president. subject to human authority, even the emperor. And then he says at the end, honor the emperor. But this time it's different because in verse 13, he was dealing with the action. In this verse, he's dealing with the attitude and it's very different. Listen to me, church. You can do something and have a bad, rotten, lousy attitude. You can be like the little kid who says, dad, I'm going to do what you say, but I'm not going to like it. I hear that all the time too. I'm going to give my 10% of my allowance, but I'm not going to like it. Well, that's too bad because it doesn't count. You don't give it with the right attitude. It doesn't count. This is what Peter's saying here. 
saying honor the emperor. It's obedience, but do it with the right attitude or it's not honor. It's the right action, but it's the wrong attitude. Honor the emperor. They were probably saying, yeah, but the emperor is Nero. Caesar Nero. Peter's saying, honor the emperor. Yeah, but the president is so-and-so. Honor the president. Honor the president, because that's what the Bible says to do. Let me warn you as a pastor. This comes from my heart, I promise. Church, be very careful how you talk about your governing authorities. Be very careful. careful of saying things that really don't compliment but deprecate political figures that you disagree with. Be careful. You can disagree with them. I disagree with a lot of our political leaders. Strongly disagree. You cannot even like them, but whether it's your president or your governor or police force, they are to be prayed for and they are to be honored. Because they are in a place, according to the Bible, if I'm reading it right, and I'm pretty sure I am, God allowed them to be in. So honor them. Honor them. This is my challenge to you today. Go home this afternoon. Make a prayer list. You bet. Make a prayer list of all those political figures in your life you really don't like. (laughs) Even the police officer who gave you a ticket yesterday that didn't happen to me and start praying for them you'll find that hate cannot well up in the heart that prays and a prayer of honor to a loving God do you hear me hate cannot well up in the heart that prays a prayer of honor to a loving God father we love you so much we're so thankful for today we're thankful for Peter's word it was tough this is a difficult passage this is hard to understand sometimes and it's difficult but Lord we understand that it's in your word and we are to obey your word we know that you're speaking to us today God help us help us to honor those that you have placed in authority unless it means we disobey you and at that point give us the courage to disobey the boldness to stand up for what is right us to understand that honoring a leader doesn't mean we have to align with them and agree with them, and it doesn't mean that we can't share God's truth and speak truth in the situation, but we can do it in an honorable way. We don't have to be silent. We have a voice. We can use our voice. Help us to do that in your wisdom and in your strength and in your power so that the world that is watching us sees how awesome and amazing you are so that they say I want to be in that family we pray this in Jesus name